to another episode of Pocket Law Talks. This is Brad. Over across the way at the controls is Devin. Hey, how's it going? We're jumping right back into the Delphi case. Yeah, we've been covering this a lot lately, yeah, but what, for good reason. We were just talking, episode, this episode, our fourth episode? This is our fourth episode. Yeah, so last time we left off, we were kind of covering some of the defense motions. We went into those Frank's memorandum and motions to suppress. And right. Some of the allegations that were being made about uh, things where the, the the police had done some 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 things wrong. Case has done a complete 180 since then, but not necessarily pertaining to Richard Allen himself, but something that you wouldn't really expect. Yeah, I mean, if this is a roller coaster, they just lost three out of the four wheels. That's how yeah. I describe it. Um, just some very unusual developments. Things, I mean, quite honestly, these are kind of these are the kind of things movies are made out of. Uh, the drama that's been. Uh, instigated into this case over the over the last month or and that's the thing too it's because you know only like a portion of the population realizes just how like grave and severe this whole situation is and has become you know most of the population has no idea why this is happening or why it matters so what sort of spurred this uh drastic turn of events and this like i said literally is things movies are made of one of the defense attorneys uh uh, Attorney Baldwin, who was on the case, and we'll talk about why he's not anymore, uh, had some a buddy and maybe an employee or two that improperly photographed some of the evidence in this case, including um, pictures from the scene that were you know pretty gruesome things that wouldn't normally get out in the public. The employee was already fired from this point. I think he had came in to speak with uh, one of the attorneys for something, and he ended up sneaking into a conference room and snapping pictures of all these documents that were laid out for this because that's something that attorneys, you know, especially when they're working on something together, you know, they'll go into a conference room, they'll lay out all the documents and it'll just be there, but the rooms are locked. But, you know, attorney can go out, grab lunch, do something, go use the bathroom. And nobody else in the firm would have a justification of doing this unless you had a bone to pick with him. And so this guy snaps pictures of him and ends up leaking them to the media, which, you know, looks really bad on the defense's case. And then the guy ends up killing himself. Yeah, one of the people involved had, had committed suicide. The, the um, evidence was stuff that was supposed to be sealed, wasn't supposed to be out in the public record by the, by the order of the court. And so that causes a whole line of drama. I will say it's not unusual at all when, when you're knee-deep in trial preparation. I mean, we have a conference room here in our law firm. You'll take over the conference room. Your stuff's going to be spread out all over that table because it's a lot when you're when you're putting on a trial, when you're preparing for trial, and you're putting on a trial, you are essentially the orchestrator of a play. You're writing a story, and you have to prepare all the witnesses. You're creating a theory of the case. You're you're cutting it into segments. You're making piles, and you know a trial binder of a case for this nature. It's going to be binders. I mean, you're talking hundreds and hundreds of pages. You're going to have to prepare. You can't just do that in your on your desk. So you have to spread out. You can't pack it up and put it all together. And and uh, open it back up every day. You're going to leave it there in your in your conference right. room and, and sort of take <clears> over <throat> that spot. And certainly, we all have staff that could take advantage of that in a high profile case and and misuse that information. Yeah, they would just end up getting fired and right. any other sanctions that come across their desk. Plus, you know, criminal charges and whatnot, which is what they were looking at this guy, and that's probably why he killed himself. Yeah, and so th- this this gets out there. It makes itself into some of the social medias where it sort of sort of first gets out on on public knowledge, and obviously that gets the the court very upset. Um, there's some uh, emails that are exchanged, and they're told you have to come to 
this hearing, be there a little bit early. And stop working on the case until then. Yeah, yeah so one of the allegations. Now, we should say some of the transcripts in this have not been produced yet. Um, it's also not appropriate for us to, to comment on the specific uh, judge qualifications, things of that nature. So we have to walk a little bit of a fine line here. The things we're talking about today are things that have been alleged in, in, in motions at this point that are a public record. And so there's nothing here that we are privy to that isn't already out there in the, in the public. But it's been alleged by the two defense attorneys that they were ordered into chambers and that they needed to cease working on the case immediately. Well, what had happened was before they had met in chambers, it was like two or three days prior. And this was on my case where it says no further work to be done on, on the case until they were to be until they were to meet in chambers. Correct. Correct. Right. And so then they meet in chambers. And at this point, uh, he had hired David Hennessy, one of the attorneys that I think it was Baldwin. Right. David Hennessy, uh, he's actually, I think, of counsel in Baldwin's firm. Um, long, and, and I will say, these all the defense attorneys involved in this case uh, have a good reputation. Yeah, they're, these are decently big names. Yeah, they're well thought of. Uh, Dave Hennessy is kind of a local legend in the Marion County uh, courts. He's, he's on the older side now, but uh, guys tried probably as many cases as anybody in central Indiana. And so he enters an appearance to represent the interests of um, the two defense attorneys for Richard Allen, Rozzi and Baldwin. And he never really even gets the opportunity to speak for them. He ends up submitting a memo to the court, but he, right. he doesn't it, even get the opportunity to speak in front of the judge. She pulls him into their chambers immediately. and Yeah, so th- this is where the allegations get really interesting. In the chambers meeting, the they've alleged, and that transcript has not been produced yet. But it, it was recorded. It was recorded. It's been requested, or it's been now been ordered, that it has to either be transcribed or the judge has to say why she hasn't. So we'll get to that in a little bit because that's the card ahead of the horse. The, in, the, in the allegations, the meeting that occurs in the chambers, the two defense attorneys, Baldwin and Razi, have said they were essentially given an ultimatum. You can either withdraw from the case voluntarily quote unquote, or I'm going to read a statement into the record that I've prepared that says you were so grossly negligent in this case, I'm removing you from it. Which would be a a massive public. The one reason why they wouldn't want to have that happen is because one, it's a massive public embarrassment for a judge to do that, especially in front of your clients and especially in a setting where, you know, a lot of the nation's eyes are looking at it, you know, and for the, your average layperson doesn't understand, they would just think, oh, well, if the judge is doing this, this attorney sucks. And so it would have a lot of impact on the future of the attorney. Not only that, but it, it can start the putting defense. It in it, the defense in general. Um, you know, it can start impacting Richard Allen himself, all this time that they've put into it just for his attorneys to be yanked away and to basically restart over. And it can impact the future of well, if the, you know, people, people may think, well, if this guy's so crooked, he's making his attorneys crooked, then he's just clearly crooked, you know. Right. People definitely spills over to the client, which is, you know, now that puts you as an attorney, puts you in a trick bag, right? Do you withdraw sort of quietly uh, and, and go away, or do you let this public um, sort of statement be made about your attorney's acting grossly negligent, which wasn't Not really only, their fault. Well, and it doesn't. That doesn't. Re, that doesn't uh, just reflect poorly on the attorneys. The words "grossly negligent" would imply too that perhaps the defense that they were putting forward wasn't a good defense. So there's an overture there that that I think causes a lot of problems. 
And so the attorneys did what they thought was the only thing they had to do. I think they handled it really smart the way that they did it. Yeah, so they 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 do orally withdraw. One says they're going to do it a couple days later. Couple, Baldwin later. withdraws immediately. Rossi says he's going to withdraw a couple days later. And um, that ends up not actually happening. So when after this meeting, you know, they had ended up leaving and court was over and David Hennessy never got to speak in front of the court, but he did release a memo basically arguing on behalf of his client, which is the, the defense team. Right. They, they basically said, you know, if, if they didn't recuse themselves, that they would have been publicly embarrassing or embarrassing. And so so what happens there is that essentially the the defense attorneys withdraw. The judge comes out on the record and says an unusual turn of events has occurred. Unfortunately, unfortunately, that the defense attorneys have decided to withdraw from their case and just leaves it at that. Makes it kind of seem like that. She also stated that this was unforeseen. Right. That they were, even though she had just threatened them to leave, she said that due to unforeseen circumstances. That's alleged. That's what's alleged to have happened in the in the uh, in the meeting, well, yeah, alleged, and then it comes out that it's kind of a surprise. These attorneys, based on uh, for what she didn't give any reason, because now they're not going to be public embarrassed for it, uh, with lets them withdraw from the case. They then do a whole slew of things to try to undo that, and the, the court's response is basically, "You're no longer attorney of records. I'm not. Adre- I'm not addressing the motions you're filing after that," and that includes Hennessy's right. argument. Um, yep, and that was ten twenty six. So this is a week after all of this happened. Um, they had the defense had released a motion to disqualify and a verified notice of continuing representation, and it had been filed by Allen and his team. And they were trying to disqualify the judge for biases and misconduct, and to inform the courts that despite being removed from being Allen's public defender, that they're now going to represent him pro bono as private counsel. So not only did she remove them as public defenders, which, you know, that's a state-sanctioned thing. You know, the judge kind of assigns a public defender. So you could see that there's a little bit more leeway in removing a public defender. But now they have agreed to do this pro bono, and it is the same as if Richard Allen had called a random attorney and they decided to, to, just to hire him. To hire him and take over his case. And, and just to take a step back, too, with the public defender... Uh, in most courts, there's a couple different sets, there's a couple different setups for public defenders in the in the Indian state courts. Some of the counties, especially the larger ones like uh, Marion County, Allen County, Lake County, they have a public defender agency, and there's an attor- there are attorneys that work solely as public defenders. The court is not involved in any way of deciding which public defender gets what case. The public defender's office decides what attorneys are going to be assigned to what courts. And then what which cases each attorney gets that's in those courts. So in those situations, the large scale counties, the, the courts are completely removed from the process of figuring out who the attorney is going to be. They play no role in it at all. Now, may they complain to the supervisor of the public defenders agency about ex attorney for not doing their job? Well, maybe, but they don't get a handpick who's who's doing things. And then the other setup that a lot of counties have, especially smaller counties, is private attorneys also work as public defender on contract. The judge is a little bit more involved in that because in in those situations, the contract is with the court and the public defender is subject to the renewal of that contract, but the contract typically is for a year. So there's some control, but they can't just sort of uh, yank them out of cases and and things of that nature. Uh, And then within those courts where they have the contract set up, 
they're randomized typically. There'll be four or five different public defenders, and it, it and they just rotate who gets a case. So the judge isn't like saying, "Well, this is a case you should be on because I think you'd be a better fit." It's just whoever randomly gets assigned to it out of the attorneys that have contracts in the in this court. The one thing that is um, really interesting in this setup because we have a special judge, because we have uh, being taken out of the county it normally is in. And because of the high pro- uh, uh, profile profileness of this case, they sort of did handpick two good attorneys that had a lot of experience in handling these type of matters to handle the case. So that put it in a little bit of a unique situation. So what happens is they enter their appearance now. Uh, Rosie and Baldwin enter their appearance now pro bono, supposedly, which means free, right? So taking any involvement really normally what would be with, over, over the court having control over who the counsel is. And she, uh, the judge sets a record saying, essentially, that your counsel, now she does what she said she was going to do allegedly, and says, your counsel acted grossly negligent. I just can't let them represent you. And so she refuses to accept their reentry of appearance into the case and appoints, and this is a judge that's from Allen County, so she appoints two uh, public defenders, the head public defender and one of the um, uh, experienced uh, trial attorneys as a public defender out of Allen County. So now it's sort of uh, put it in a realm where she's... These are public defenders that will have to be in front of her again. So if they piss her off, you can make your own conclusions from that. Well, so they're going to be more it, likely to be friendly with certainly each other. Certainly, she pointed an attorney she knows better. Let's right. put it that way. And so now there's... Uh, a removal of private counsel because they had entered their appearance as as um, pro bono, not not needing to be public defenders anymore. They've not they've been told you cannot enter in that in that way either. And the um, yeah, well, attorney who was representing Baldwin has no record to make because they're not even allowed. To right? Make yeah, they had made all these. They tried to make all these things on the record, all these filings, and the judge was basically like, "You've already been removed." As the public defender, you basically cannot represent them no matter what, and you have no basis to file these because you are no longer the attorney of record. And so because of that, she has effectively fired his private counsel. And against every argument from both Richard Allen and his defense team, Richard Allen had stated multiple times on the record that he he wanted them to continue representing him. He did not think what they did was grossly negligent, and the – even in court, the judge had a conversation. Was just like, I just can't. I can't allow them to do this with how grossly negligent they have been. So it, it's, be- it's, it's 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 an important point you kind of you made there a little quickly. Throughout this, Allen has maintained, I want Baldwin and Rousey. Yeah, he has maintained the entire time, like he wants them and them alone, and he has spoken very highly of their support of him. And and that's a that's an important point not to gloss over because it is a constitutional right to counsel. You have a right to an attorney. And to a degree, um, you have the right to have an attorney of your your choosing. So now in the public defender world, it's sort of this weird quasi, right? Right? Because the court does appoint randomly based on whatever they've set up for their public defenders in a court. And you get who you get. Happens frequently in the public defender world that the, that the defendant is not happy with the, the public defender got appointed. They'll call them 
public pretenders, I want a real attorney. They'll say all types of really offensive things. Just like every in every profession, there are public defenders that are really good at their job. There's public defenders that aren't very good at their job. There's the problem with public attorneys. defenders inherently is that they're just so, especially in like Marion County, they're so slammed with so many cases. It's it's like you've got to be a superhero to be able to get all these things done. I mean, yeah, they, they high caseloads uh, can't pay attention to the, the details of communication with clients and stuff like that. But the, you know, in the private world, there's attorneys that aren't great either. I mean, it just it's the nature of every profession. So it's you'll see defendants ask for their public defender to be removed because they don't like them or they don't get along with them. It's very rare to see a public defender removed. And I, quite honestly, courts will rarely grant that request. They'll basically tell them, look, this is your public defender. You have to, you have to work with them. Uh, there has to be a real breakdown in the relationship before they'll remove a public defender from a case like that. But it's extremely rare. Matter of fact, I can't think of any time where I've seen a client that's happy with their attorney, whether it's a public defender or not, uh, be removed from a case without some extreme, extreme circumstances. And keep in mind, you know, it, it'd be argue, it'd be easy to argue that what they did was gross misconduct because they didn't lock up the room and someone t- came in and took photos of it. But ultimately, this wasn't even someone that was represented by their firm anymore. They weren't working for them anymore. None of that. This was just someone who wanted. It could legitimately happen to anyone. Yeah, he wanted his moment in the limelight, or he wanted to get back at his bosses for whatever perceived slight that he had against him. Yeah, whatever the motive was. That I mean, it, it, it all of them. I mean, every firm, every staff, and especially in this digital age. I mean, they have access to your files. I, I mean, your, imagine the bailiff. Have access to your files. Imagine the bailiff just going into the judge's chambers and photographing all of whatever she has laid out, and then posting it, and then right, the, the judge being at fault. Absolutely, the clerk that posts that that gets all the evidence filed on it that was sealed. Obviously, she could have done that. Yeah, she could have copied everything to her computer and then posted every. Like these are things. Like this is their job, right? So the fact that they just you can't force someone to do their job correctly, right? So in the in the background, another little side issue, one that the media has certainly been very attuned to. Uh, there's been a lot of gag orders and a lot of documents in this case that have been sealed. Um, a lot of those sealed documents have been the pleadings the defense has made in regards to the Frank's motion and things of that nature. Obviously, the there's a lot of rules in Indiana on public access to records. And remember, Frank's motion is related to police misconduct, police lying on the record, things like that, subpoenas being changed, whatnot, just fruits of the poisonous tree. Stuff that, yeah, stuff that, you know, the idea behind our system and, and why... The prosecutors elected, that the judges are elected, that the court system is under the scrupulous eye of the public, so that if they are doing their job right, the public can vote them out of office, right? So when you do, that's why all the rules say you really shouldn't seal stuff very often because you want the public to be able to hold the elected officials accountable. And so there's this dual issue going on in the background of the attorneys and all the stuff that's going on that is getting the lion's share of attention for sure. But then there's this other issue out there that the public access rules uh, uh, may be getting violated. So that takes us sort of the next spin that this case takes. We're going to talk about this. Uh, I always say in the legal world, one of the things that attorneys do is we create phrases that sound really like important and scary just to keep our job secure. So like, uh, you know, race ipsa loquitur, uh, buyer beware, uh, um, Respondent superior, that means that I'm responsible for the actions of my employees. But we make these big words and make them scary and 
And and then it makes it where, all right, we have job security because we learned these fancy words and, and that you could just put into plain English. Well, one of those is something called a writ of mandamus. Um, what in the world is a writ of mandamus? Nobody's ever heard of that before. It is an extremely rarely utilized tool that the state of Indiana has created and the courts have created. So basically, all of the counties have their own local courts. There's a superior court and there's a circuit court. One circuit court in every county for the most part. There's a few random counties that handle these differently. And then there's usually superior courts that have been built on top of the circuit court. Circuit court is the original court of jurisdiction. So when that county first became a county, in most counties in Indiana, the very first court they had was the circuit court. And then as the counties have grown and become more, they add superior courts onto those. Some have added circuit courts, but most have added superior courts onto those. So the circuit court is the original court of jurisdiction. But all of those courts operate under the power and the authority of the Supreme Court of Indiana. So there's the Supreme Court in Indiana. They are the ultimate supervisors of all the courts below. They create the rules the courts have to operate under. They are, um, if there's a judicial complaint against somebody, the Supreme Court is the one that will look at it eventually and decide whether that, that there was misconduct. But then there's also this, this action that's called a writ of mandamus. And it's what's called an original action. And that writ of mandamus is a fancy way of saying, hey, Supreme Court, we've got a judge that's doing something so out of bounds that you need to step in and make some decisions here. And side note here, too, you know, think of the Supreme Court, how it has to keep every single court and every single judge in line in Indiana. So it takes them a long time to rule on things, especially when it comes to misconduct. But the only time that that's not the case is if it's an active, ongoing case, because, you know, we have rights to speedy trials and to not be incarcerated for X amount of time. And that a lot of times that's just completely trampled on, but they do try to, you know, further those and keep people on the right track to having their trial not pushed back five years just because of some complaint filed with the Indiana Supreme Court. So this right. isn't something that won't be ruled on far away. It's actually right. been scheduled to be ruled on immediately. Very and uh, I think the first date was like, what, November 7th? And then judge filed for a continuance and it was pushed back by two days it was November yeah so, 9th. so the law around the writ of mandamus says hey we've got an appellate process that's what you need to follow when you think a judge did something wrong you go you take the court the case to its conclusion you then file a motion or an appeal with the court of appeals the court of appeals then takes months and decides whether something was wrong and if they do they can sit it back to the lower court and if you don't like that decision then you can take it to the supreme court Supreme Court takes a very small fraction of the appeals that make it through that process, but they that's the preferred method. And they and within the rules and the case law developed around a writ of mandamus, they make it very clear, do not use this unless you think you absolutely have to. There's an appellate process when you disagree with the lower court. You need to follow that. This is a rare usage tool. Matter of fact, I was trying to think back in my 23 years of doing this, I can only think of two or three times I've ever seen one file. I know it's been more often than that. The case law around it is very minimal because they're so rarely used. But in an instance where the rights, or where there's an allegation that a judge is doing something that's severely out of bounds and it's, it's uh, the allegations are that it's, it's trampling Mr. Allen's right to counsel, his, his active right to counsel that he chooses, um, this is, I think, a proper mechanism of that tool. So that's what now has been filed on on two different fronts. So there's attorneys that work for uh, a large law firm here in Indianapolis, Frost, Braun, and Traw. There's a couple different attorneys that entered their appearance. They filed the first writ of mandamus. Writ of mandamus is our original action, so new cause numbers created. And it's filed directly to the Supreme Court. It's not filed in 
the state court. It's filed to the Supreme Court, and they're asking them. They attacked, or they, they filed a motion kind of on two fronts. Their, their primary focus was on the um, what they are alleging is abuse of the access to records rules, and they set forth a, uh, a very very well-written argument on the number of things that the judge has ordered sealed in this case and how it's been disproportionately um, applied to the defense as opposed to the state and that those records should be ordered unsealed. And then later on in their motion, they also uh, address sort of uh, tangentially the argument that there was a um, abuse by the judge by removing, removing the defense attorneys and impeding Mr. Allen's trial. He's supposed to be going to trial in January. Now it's been set all the way out till November of next year. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't know that. Booted way out. Um, I mean, surely if they get a new judge, it's probably going to be pushed even farther, right? Yeah. So th- that's that's sort of what they've they've argued first. The judge was given a very tight timeline. I think till November 9th originally to respond to that, and then secondary to that, um, counsel for. Um, Baldwin and Rossi have now been hired on behalf of Allen, uh, asking, filing a separate writ of mandamus. So now we have two separate actions pending in the Supreme Court, asking the Supreme Court to say, hey, the judge was out of bounds. She removed uh, two attorneys from the case that the, that the defendant was happy with. It wants, he wants to be on the case. And now she's abridging his constitutional right to counsel. And they wrote a, a pretty detailed motion asking uh, the Supreme Court to reinstate the two defense attorneys and to uh, remove the judge and, and, and appoint a new judge. Well, it, 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 it doesn't stop there. Well, yeah, while this is all going on, uh, Allen shows up to court with his public defenders, and once again, Rossi and Baldwin show up, and they are once again removed and told to leave against all of the... Not, they're basically not allowed to be on the record. Yeah, not allowed to be there at all. Even against, you know, uh, Richard wishes. Allen, you know, clearly saying that that's not what he wants whatsoever. And at the same time, they she has stopped responding to anything in regards to this case whatsoever. She's not ruling on anything in this from case. The, which, from the... From the criminal side. Well, basically what she's done, anything Baldwin and Rossi filed, because they... They yeah, she's not ruling on reviews. it anymore. She appointed the two new attorneys and said, hey, you guys need time to get up to speed on this case. All this stuff that these other attorneys filed, you can decide whether you want me to actually rule on it or not. So she has kind of hit the pause button on what everything they did before and have now said, new attorneys, you decide whether these are really worth my um, time and what you want to argue in front of me or not. And so that, yeah, it has essentially put Richard Allen's defense on, on pause. And when it comes to a judge removing counsel like this, like there has literally been a handful of times that this has ever happened, and I think all but one of them were overturned, where yeah, they can't remove the counsel, especially when the defendant wishes to keep that counsel. Yeah, so the the case law that is cited by the uh, parties asking for Baldwin and, and Rossi to be reinstated, uh, there's a, a couple of instances where there's been some... Um, counsel removed, but usually it's for dereliction of duty. They aren't doing their job. They're not representing the client well. Um, those, that type of situation, they're not showing up for court hearings, things of that nature. Um, and this situation is different than that. And then they've cited cases from all over the country because it's such a rare event. There was actually quite a few from Texas, interestingly enough, uh, where the Texans, Texas judges have removed counsel. 
and, and they were overturned. Yeah, and the theme of it is, if it was all overturned. If you're upset with how a defense attorney is presenting his case, or you don't like all the motions they're filing, a remedy to the court is not to remove them, because you know the, it, that. Yeah, that's it's it states multiple times that that is a last like last thing you should do. There's, there's all no these other, other yeah, no other remedy, and the judge the, the court didn't even try any other remedies. Their first re- response was to. Just remove. Yeah, there was no record made of really why they were removed other than just gross negligence. And there was also never an opportunity to be heard where the current defense counsel could make an argument against it. And I think that's where there's probably going to ultimately be some issues. Yeah, and, that, and that's why all these other attorneys are now getting involved because there's Rosie and Baldwin, and that's for Richard Allen himself. And then David Hennessy gets involved to help Rosie and Baldwin in front of the current judge, and now there's this other law firm that has decided to jump on pro bono to help Rosie and Baldwin with the Supreme Court case. And yeah. all they want is for them to be reinstated, and then they'll back off again. So that this has popped up a lot of like people out of the woodwork t- to come to the defense of Richard Allen. Which, keep in mind, this is an accused child murderer. Right, the accusations so, are serious. From all sides, this is kind of a nightmare, right? I mean, Richard Allen obviously needs to have his day in court, get his opportunity to to, to have the, the jury. Yeah, and this just kind of taints it even more. On. The more that this stuff happens, the more that people are going to run with their own opinions, and right. they're going to think, oh, well, for sure he definitely did it, or for sure he definitely didn't do it. And then you never really and you never a, really find – you don't get justice by doing that. And there's a victim's family, too, that this is all being delayed on, too. You know, that, that's, that's the other side of this, too. So – in, in all of this mess that's now being filed in the Supreme Court, this in-chambers conversation where the defense attorneys were saying they were basically given an ultimatum that wasn't a fair choice was recorded. We know it was recorded. They filed a motion to have that transcript prepared. That hasn't been ruled on. Nothing's happened on it. The Supreme Court has now stepped in and issued an order. Once they're involved, they're allowed to issue orders into the lower court case, which they have done now. And they've ordered the judge and her counsel to either turn that transcript over by the deadline of when when their brief is due or file a motion explaining why it shouldn't be turned over. I think that's probably a sign from them that they're like, okay, you made a record of these proceedings, type them up. Um, so I think that that's, gonna, that's eventually gonna, going to come out. How bad would it would have been if they weren't recorded? Because how often, how often is in-chamber, in-chamber con- meetings recorded? Frequently not. That, that's why. Yeah. So the fact that they're even able to be transcribed seems quite like well, unusual. The, the, I've heard it now be called an in-camera hearing, and so th- that's a weird terminology because there's no camera involved. I don't know why they've always called it that. But in chambers, when they call it an in-camera hearing, there is a record made of it. So apparently, they everybody knew there was going to be a record made of this hearing, and so the reason you make a record is for this exact exact thing. If there's a Disagreement. The higher court can see. All right, we get to know exactly what happened. It's like right. the wonderful advent of having body cameras on cops. We don't have to trust police officers' words or the defendants' words anymore. It's all recorded. Except now, the normal person can't access them without paying a shitload of money to an attorney. But never mind on that. <laughs> yeah, there's. Yeah, that's a whole another another story for a whole another day. So that issue is going on in the in the meantime, and then a very interesting um, development too, which is 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 unusual. Uh, when a state government actor gets a action brought against them, whether it's a lawsuit or a, a writ of mandamus, something like that, it's not unusual for the attorney general's office, that's one of their functions, is to defend state government actors, uh, will enter their appearance and represent the judge's interest in the case. 
there's no explanation for why, so I'm not going to speculate to it, other than just to say it is in the record now that the Attorney General's office has declined to represent the judge in this case. Unusual and interesting. So, yeah, really she speculate. has to get private counsel, and she keeps pushing back. Uh, she keeps asking for continuances to get private counsel, and this well, most recent continuance was actually uh, objected by the opposing side, sure. which I find to be ironic because – this judge is one that doesn't like to grant continuances. So, well, the the idea behind it is, she had this first Supreme Court action filed against her, and then she had a second one. So the attorneys are arguing they're too busy responding to the first one to respond to the second one. The state has the Supreme Court has not uh, ruled on whether or not she's going to get a, an additional con, a continuance. They gave her an additional five days. They've asked for another five days, which would push it out past Thanksgiving based on how they calculate business It seems days. a little absurd to just hire another attorney and to respond to this, especially a judge which most likely well, they, isn't strapped for cash. They're, they're, Judges are paid pretty well. Well, they're, she's using the same counsel in both cases. They're just saying we have to respond to this first one. Now we have a second one to respond. We don't have enough time to do both. But I, we'll see how the Supreme Court rules on that. I mean, the, the issues – of those two filings are pretty on point uh, is addressing a lot of the same things. So I wouldn't be surprised if the Supreme Court says, now we need to have these briefing. These briefings need to be done. Because Richard Allen's also saying, I still want my January trial date. And so right. that puts everybody And the attorneys have said that they are able and willing and, and to go to, to trial right. in early January. And something that we have kind of been covered a little bit, but we haven't talked about too much, with those writ of mandamuses, um, other reputation ridden actors in the state that are especially like you know scholarly places and uh you know place even police departments or whatnot the what was it the the head of iu wrote down like his support for the writ of mandamus so, as well as what the head of uh public, public defenders, defenders of, of indiana right yeah so these are like influential organizations that have in a way, almost look like they're siding. They're siding with Richard Allen not for his innocence, but that he deserves his fair day in court. Yeah. So another. This is a little less unusual, but it, it, a unique twist to this is uh, on the writ of mandamus filed on behalf of Richard Allen to get his two attorneys uh, reinstated. That's the second one that was filed. The, uh, there's been what's called, a, 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 again, one of these fancy terminologies we use, a, an amicus or amicus curie brief. Um, that is a fancy terminology that means an interested party would like to have a word here. Uh, that's what that means. So there's a way you can file an amicus brief if you're an interested party and can establish that you're an interested party and add your sort of two cents to the argument. And that's happened in this case as well. So the Public Defenders Council... And then Joel Shum, who is a pretty well-renowned uh, criminal defense professor at the IU Law School, have entered their appearance and asked permission to file an amicus brief on this as well. And they've done so. They have filed that at last check, and we haven't had a chance to look at it at, at, the, at the, the date of the taping of this. Uh, the Supreme Court hasn't said, yes, you can. But in their amicus brief, the Public Defenders Council and Professor Schum are arguing basically in support of Richard Allen's two attorneys and saying, hey, this judge is basically taking this uh, your right to attorney and and not allowing it to be effectuated accurately for Richard Allen. That he should be able to keep the counsel he wants 
And, Judge, you shouldn't play a role in that. So they have filed a brief in support of Richard Dowden's brief before the judge's team has even filed a response yet. So now you've got these other out. And the Public Defender's Council is a statewide agency, certainly well-respected. It operates under the authority of the Supreme Court as well. Um, and then Professor Shum is, is well-known in the, in the criminal world, for sure. He writes lots of scholarly articles about the criminal process. He's even been entered his appearance in other cases before, too. They've now jumped in and given their two cents and said, hey, we agree this should not have happened. And then they added an additional twist that was very interesting. They said, okay, we think Richard Allen should keep his attorneys, but, Supreme Court, if you decide they should be removed, we don't think the process of how they picked the new attorneys was appropriate, that it shouldn't have been just selected from a county where the judge already works in. We should have been requested to appoint the new counsel so that it was outside of the judge's influence and control and that we could appoint counsel that would be what we believe appropriately able to handle this this case. So they've added another twist. They're saying, let Richard Allen's attorney stay on. That 100% should happen. But if you don't, remove the ones the judge just appointed and let us pick those from all the public defenders that are available across the state without any influence from the court whatsoever. So another unique twist to this case that just is... Um, I mean, folks, this is just unheard of stuff in terms of how these cases go. There's been a lot of big high-profile cases over the last few years in Indiana. The ones, you know, you can think of the the South Side um, explosion where the homes were all blown up. And, you know, you had Officer Broussard who had the, the um, ran over the motorcycle guys intoxicated in his, um, in his police vehicle. They had to bring in outside juries and outside judges to, to do all these things. None of this stuff happened. This is like so rare territory. And for us in the legal business, it's like super interesting and nerdy to dig into because we're in uncharted territory. And there's going to be some really, really interesting, I think, uh, and unique case law that comes out that will really establish and set the parameters for what it means to have the right to counsel in Indiana. So the first judge recused himself, um, and I don't remember, I'm pretty sure there wasn't a reason stated on why he recused himself, and so now the second judge was selected. If this judge was to get as far as removed by the Indiana Supreme Court, how do they go about selecting a new judge? I'm speculating here completely, but if they remove her, I believe the Supreme Court will will pick the new judge. If I were to guess, and this is Simply does it have to be like a Carroll or Cass County judge, or does that no. can it be any judge anywhere? No, in I mean Indiana? she wasn't from Cass. She wasn't from Carroll County. She's from Allen County. So, oh, I thought she was from Cass County. No, it could be from it could be from anywhere. I wouldn't. It, it, so let's speculate just a minute and assume that the Supreme Court removes the judge from the case. My guess is there's a thing in Indiana called senior judges. Senior judges are um, retired elected judges. They continue to work uh, as judges in the state of Indiana. They typically fill in for other judges either when they're on vacation or a judge has fallen ill and isn't able to be on the bench, those kind of situations. Uh, senior judges appear, so some, some senior judges appear every week in the same uh, courthouse. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful benefit for senior judges. If they, if they continue to work, they get to keep their health insurance. They have to work one time a month or something like that. But they don't have their own full docket of cases to manage. There's some really, really good, talented senior judges across the state of Indiana that would be, um, if they'd be willing to to accept an appointment to take on this case, would make a lot of sense. Because they have to accept it. They're not, like, demanded to do it. 
Well, I think that it would probably be a situation where they would be, hey, we would like to appoint you to this if you'd be willing to do it. No, I mean, they, you, you still have freedom. You can't force somebody to work for you. You could, as a senior judge, you could you could say, I, I can't handle that. Um, and that's kind of what happened at the lower level. The Carroll County judge is like, look, we're a little bitty county. We don't have the capacity to, to handle everything that's going to go on with this case. It's a lot to ask, and you know, in in Judge Gall's defense here, it's a lot to ask a judge to take on a case like this in another county that they don't work in, while they've got their own full caseload. Now, County's a yeah. busy court system. She's got a lot going on there, so it's a lot to ask to have a judge take this case on. To me, it would make perfect sense to appoint a senior judge who doesn't have the caseload, and there's a lot of really good uh, retired. Senior judges out there, and but. so to appoint a senior judge, that's something that the uh, Indiana Supreme Court has to do. Why, like, why wasn't that done originally? Originally, when the judge was um, uh, recused himself, he played the local judge would have played a role in selecting who that new judge was. If a judge is removed, the Supreme Court takes a judge out of a case. This very rarely happens, so a lot of this is just educated sort of guesses on my part. Uh, I believe the Supreme Court would appoint a new judge to oversee. Uh, the, the remainder of the trial. Uh, so I think that's, if they do that, to me, the logical solution is to appoint a senior judge who's still hanging out in Indiana and, and still working, give him a courtroom to work out of. And, and you know, that would be Carroll County, most likely, where the court case is uh, pending. And, you know, let them, ha- let them have at it. Another interesting twist that has happened, it hasn't really been reported very much in this case, uh, James Luttrell, entered his his appearance as special prosecutor on the state side while all this was going on. James Luttrell is a, a talented uh, former elected prosecutor out of Grant County, Indiana, actually where I grew up um, for many years. And he has now uh, joined in on the case on the state side. And I think for the exact reasons I'm talking about why you'd want a senior judge on the, on the judicial side, you know, the prosecutor in Carroll County is is over a little staff. He's got a, a lot of cases he has to deal with, and, and I think it would be hard-pressed to be able to do both of these jobs, and this case has become almost like a full-time job. And so I, I, I interestingly enough, saw J, James Luttrell into his appearance, so he's now involved on the state side. So we may end up with a lot of uh, new parties in this case. Um if Baldwin and, and Rossi do get reappointed, I think it gets the case largely back on track. Um, but there's a lot of stuff pending out there. These Frank's motions, these motions to suppress that have to be ruled on if they're going to legitimately try to do a trial in January with the holidays. A lot of work to be done. So it'll be really interesting to see how this all plays out. So what do you think, how long do you think it would take for this whole Supreme Court fiasco to come to a conclusion or at least come to a point where the original court can continue proceeding yeah, so you think the, this is like a month long thing, or is it going to be like a six month long thing? No, this will this will be this will be quick. Uh, the Supreme Court originally set a deadline of only like I think it was five or six days to respond, and of of the sixteenth or no, it was the eleventh, and then it was backed up I think to the sixteenth. Um, that there's a pending motion to give additional time till November 29th. We'll see if they grant that or not. Whenever this the briefing stops, so that means both parties have said everything they want to say in terms of filing briefs in this case, they will probably be um, making a decision, I would guess, within a week, maybe two. And that's un- – Do you think they'll still have eyes on this speed. case? Um, I think it depends on what happens. 
if the um, if they remove the judge and a new judge is pointed on them, pointed on the case, I think to answer the question largely, no. Once they've once they've done what they're supposed to do and made a decision on the writ, then their jurisdiction is basically relinquished back to the 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 trial court, and then they take a step back again, and then they don't touch that case again unless it makes its way through the normal process of the of the court of appeals. It'll be really interesting to see what that decision is. This is going to be one. This is going to be one of those cases where it makes a real impact on on what it means to be having the right to counsel. That what does that constitutional right mean? They're going to have some precedent here that I think is going to be very interesting. You know, does the ju- does the judicial branch have the ability to remove counsel in a situation like this? The answer is going to be no. And what what is interesting about this though is you know as as significant as this case is and how much has been in the media's attention, this case will reverberate down for a long while because when this happens again where a judge removes counsel, this case will be cited. Oh, it'll be the forefront. Okay, I, let's let's see what they say. Right. I think I think there's a pretty good chance if I'm I'm sort of speculating here that this will make it unlikely for judges to remove counsel very often because I think the, there's a pretty decent chance the Supreme Court says you can't do that. And if they say you can't do that, judges listen because you know, one of the things judges don't like to do is be overturned. It sort of is a bit of a – most of them see it as a bit of a blemish on the record for, you know, think about just in your regular job, if you do something and your superior comes in and says, you did that wrong, not only did you do it wrong, I'm going to write a – 25-page opinion about why you did it wrong. You know, eh, well, judge, a court judge doesn't like that. So when, if they issue an opinion where they're like, okay, this was wrong, they're, they're, the ducks are going to fall in line from that point forward. And, and, and this will be, yeah, this will be likely a very good chance this case will be sort of the paramount case in Indiana on what it means to the constitutional right to counsel, for sure. Well, folks, we appreciate you joining us again for another episode of Pocket Law Talks. We're going to keep an eye on this one. Uh, it's, it's an interesting thing for us to follow. We're obviously going to continue to uh, present our traditional episodes as well on other legal issues that are out there. This one's been front and center in Indiana. And with all the stuff that has happened in this last two weeks, we felt like we were compelled to, to bring this content to you. We'll keep keeping an eye on it to you and try to make it make sense from a... A regular person's point of view, and we uh, appreciate you for joining us here for another episode of Pagala Talks. See ya.